0: What you see with the rise of technology in general, more and more people are stepping into angel capital world, the private equity world, no matter how you like to call it. Just what you saw on the stock exchange a few years ago, if you wanted to buy shares, you had to go to a banker and they had to set up an account for you and you could only buy full shares, probably only with a minimum pretty high amount. Right now for $5, I can buy a partial Amazon share if I want to with all the platforms and the technology that's out there. I see the same trend happening in angel investing as well in, in the whole world of VC and private equity, where it's becoming much more accessible again because of the rise of technology people are becoming more knowledgeable Um, people want to diversify their portfolio there's more wealth in general happening so i can see that's going to be the future where it definitely is going to be more accessible and democratized if you will for everyone out there
1: welcome to brave learn from southeast asia's best tech leaders build the future learn from our past and stay human in between no BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, zero founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join a movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkus is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.ringcast.co.id. Hey, Mikey, really excited to have you on the show. You are building out Epic Angels, uh, which is a network of female executives and operators who are looking to build out and become the largest female-only angel network in Asia. So excited to have you on the show and hear your insights. Uh, For everyone out there, uh, could you introduce yourself real quick?
0: Yes, so Mikey, born in the Netherlands, uh, moved to San Francisco about eight years ago uh, where I brought my company and further expanded. Uh, Three years ago, I did an exit there And that was my move to Singapore, where I indeed started Epic Angels. Uh, But next to that, I'm also a professor at SMU, uh, where I teach at university about business modeling, entrepreneurship, uh, part of Design Singapore, which is an EDB initiative. I'm on the board there as well. So really trying to integrate in the the whole of Southeast Asia.
1: Amazing. And how did you first enter the board, say, of entrepreneurship in terms of thinking about it, supporting it, advising it?
0: That's probably been... 18, 20 years ago? Wow, that gives away how old I am, right?
1: Was... Yeah, from those <laughs> early days in, you know, Arthur Anderson and those consulting and advisory and accounting days.
0: Yes. I mean, I've been I've I started my career. I mean, I studied math. I'm a true number person. So indeed, I started my career in those big four corporates, Arthur Anderson, Deloitte, Price Waterhouse Coopers, quickly moved from accounting into MA. a uh, it's much more fun than the whole world of MA. You know, it it actually matters what you're doing I think accounting is looking at the past MA is definitely more looking at the future and creating the future all
1: these accounting students out there are just crying <laughs> as they listen to this podcast and wonder about their life
0: they should think about like make it relevant for the future because looking at the past <laughs> is just so boring I maybe mean, you need to learn from it okay. of course to be ready for that future yeah. and I think what I quickly realized as well in those big four I wrote so many business plans and then you're having these board meetings you're producing these beautiful papers and everyone's wonderful that's a beautiful business plan but nothing really changes so that for me was a call like hey I want to do things in a different way and together with a colleague of mine Patrick we stepped in and we started a company business models Inc we're actually the producer of the business model generation book the famous business model canvas I think most startup entrepreneurs definitely are familiar with the business model canvas so we brought that book alive and that's also been my start in the whole startup world. I've been part of many accelerator programs, been helping startups, creating their business model, thinking about their business model strategy, helping them with their pitch decks, et cetera. So that's been quite a long time ago.
1: And how is it that you made your way to Singapore, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines? How did that happen as well?
0: <laughs> I'm still wondering man, as well. <laughs> I got a message from a friend earlier today and she's like, "Wow, well, I can't believe what you've been doing for the past three years and where you are already within the whole region. And I think I'm by nature a very curious person. So I love to just jump in head first and then see where that takes me and really explore. Or instead of coming in with an opinion immediately or thinking like, hey, this is how it works somewhere else, but really dive in, explore, and just embrace that whole opportunity and really learn from
1: that. So, you know, I think one thing that you had was that, you know, you had a point of view about Southeast Asia and you wanted to share about that with a lot of the folks who are curious about angel investing and being part of the Southeast Asia ecosystem. So could you share a little bit about your thoughts from your travels and uh, perspectives in comparing ecosystems?
0: So lived in Europe, United States, in San Francisco, and now here in Singapore. If I compare the startup ecosystems with each other, I always say uh, Europe is retired. I think it overall, people, their lives are too good. They lost a sense of urgency. And again, I'm generalizing, obviously, but they are just, there's no sense of urgency. They rather have a corporate job. For example, in the Netherlands, people don't even want to have stock options when they work for a startup. They just don't want to. And even if you look at the regulation, it doesn't even support it. And ESOP is literally not even possible within the Dutch ecosystem. Mm. It's very weird, right, if you think about that. And if you compare mm. that with, for example, the United States, there, of course, it's all about the American dream thing big the country is massive and immediately the whole market that you have at hand uh, by starting in the United States is impressive but I also feel that the United States just looks internal struggles to look beyond their own border and to look outside mm-hmm. of the US I feel here in in Asia Southeast Asia I see it more as the juveniles turning into adolescents and you see a couple of real rising stars a couple of people like okay they're really rebelling, where is that gonna go to? Can go either way. And I love that it's entrepreneurship. Um, it's a GDP growth that's definitely going to come from this region in the next couple of years global GDP more than 50% will be in Asia and so I really can feel that this growth opportunity that's there the rise of the middle class that brings so much more opportunity than I've seen in any other parts of the world
1: I think there's an interesting dynamic which is that I think there's this perspective of Europe and obviously Southeast Asia and let's talk a little bit about that growth you think there's a differential in that growth rate what do you think drives that from your perspective I
0: think it's just overall the GDP growth of all the individual countries, the economic growth, um, it's the rise of the middle class. Uh, people are earning more money because automatically, if there's so much disparity between the different regions, the more richer countries will outsource some of the activities to the countries where labor is just simply cheaper. And automatically, that will bring more economic growth into those regions. So that has been helping in the past couple of years to really that rise of, again, of that middle class together with the digitization where Asia could jump immediately uh, to that mm-hmm. next level whereas Europe, United States still struggles from um, all these antique systems that they still have and is still not making the change where in Asia you can just leapfrog and, mm-hmm. and immediately move forward. So I think that combination is really great to see.
1: Yeah I think it reminded me when I was doing my business school uh, I had this French professor and he was doing macroeconomics and he was very much like put together this case study he's talking about Singapore and it's like you know. And a little smug tone, he was like, How did Singapore, a former crown colony of the British, which was several times richer than Singapore? Why is it that over the past fifty years and now Singapore is richer than the UK? And there was a little bit of laughs around the place, and obviously we had a kind of discussion. But it was interesting to see it's not just a function of Asia's growth, but also I think a slowdown of growth in Europe. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting contrast of stories of they like say governance is one, but also economy and in terms of what needs to be done. And what's interesting is that you, you are looking to build out angel investing. So you build like epic angels could you share a little bit more about why you decided to build this and why you decided to build this approach
0: yes so when i was living in san francisco i mean i was also there helping many startups with their business models with their fundings i was very active in the ecosystem accelerated programs etc i started my own angel investing journey while i was living in san francisco I mean, because honestly angel investing of there it's nothing special it's like getting a coffee very easy so when i moved from San Francisco to Asia, but just wanted to continue my own journey. I just did my exits, right? More time, more money. It's like, okay, good. Let's continue this journey. I think this is a very exciting region. Let me explore the opportunities here. And I knocked on the door of a couple of communities that are out there, but it didn't feel like the way I was used to do angel investing. Immediately people were saying like, no, you have to invest at least 50K in one startup. Like 50K? Doesn't matter how much money you have. That's quite a lot to do early stage startup. And so I was like, hmm, I'm not sure I like this system. And and I tried a few and it's like, nah, this is just not for me. So I said to three friends of mine, you know what? Let's just do it together. The four of us. I know my way around in the startup ecosystem because I've been always been part of all these accelerator programs. I'll just call them up, do some business model trainings with these startups and really dive into the ecosystem. And I'll find us some deals that we can invest in. And literally that's how we got started. We didn't even have a name, it just sort of really happened. Lucky enough, we found found an amazing startup right away, and we did our first investment in six weeks. That was in Aroga. That's the the number one online pharmacy in Bangladesh. Actually doing another round right now that we are uh, going into as well. So we're super excited about uh, this specific portfolio company of ours. And so that was our first deal. And what started to happen slowly, so we were four women. Obviously, more women knocked on our door like, hey, that's cool. Uh, Female angel investors, can I join? But at the same time, startups also knocked on our door. They were saying, we need women on our cap table we only have men on our cap table can you please invest in us we just for women that didn't work obviously so it took a little while but uh, in November 21 uh, I decided you know what let's open our doors and so together with Hester my business partner we said we're gonna do this for real and we really launched Epic Angels to the outside world and allowed other female investors to come in and today we have more than 200 female investors they're all over the world interesting enough Singapore definitely being the largest group but the investors are all over the world but as an angel collective we only invest in Asia
1: Pacific. Yeah, and I'm just so curious, you know, you said that the phrase was we have that female investors on a cap table. Yeah. So could you explain from your perspective what the benefits are?
0: I think it's just a diversity. What you sometimes also see is that if it's female founders only, especially, they want us. They're like, hey, you know, we're female founders and we now need to present to this all-male board. We would love to see at least one woman on that board as well. That will help us to understand it at least from our perspective. Have also a bit more of that mentor role. That's another thing that, female founders are looking for but also the male founders are asking for the same thing it's really about bringing that diversity bringing a different perspective in by just making sure that you have a good board representation
1: and i think you're making certain decisions here right so you're making a decision to set up a syndicate that's one and two you made a decision to make that female in terms of the participants of the syndicate but i also understand that you're looking not just for female businesses but all businesses right so i'm just kind of curious about that set of dynamics
0: yeah so i think there There's a lot of focus on female founders. And I was like, I definitely want to do something different. I think there's already enough attention for female founders. When we started, we were like, we invest in everything and everyone doesn't matter. What we quickly learned, however, is that in case it's an all-male team, it doesn't work really well with our all-female investors. And I think that's just simply human nature. And that's probably also the reason why many female founders are struggling to find funding, because they often need to present towards an all-male investor team. And my firm belief is if we are getting more female investors, automatically female funders will get more funding. We don't even need to Mm -hmm. focus on that. It's just purely human nature. There's so much uncertainty when you do an angel investment. So you try to hold on to that one little piece of certainty that you recognize, which can be in gender. And that's just, again, Mm -hmm. like we can try to fight that, but I think it's just simply human nature for a big part as well. And so that's what we're looking to. So what we did, we pivoted away from we're funding everything. We now say we want to see female leadership. Which means it can mm. be female, it can be a male founder. That's totally okay as long as there's another C-level woman on the team. Then we're happy
1: you know there feels like there are obviously many kids that are out there so there is for example off the top of my head there's Ascent Angels there's Angel Central both of their founders have been on the Brave podcast before sharing Shaolin as well and there are also other folks like Findicate and other female-centered syndicates as well so how do you think about is there differentiation is it difference is there compet- competition how does this work because I think from many founders' perspective it's A versus B versus C right I think there's XA Network as well obviously there's a big yeah. one as well no
0: there are there are many other networks and some of the angels are actually a member of multiple networks and I think that's totally fine we're the only one being women only and that's our differentiator what you see because of that is that especially the learning and the education is more intense is a little different I think the type the style of communicating is more different uh, with each other. It really became a super strong community Mm -hmm. and that's personally what I really like about Epic Angels and the way we set it up. We do work together with all those other angel networks that you just mentioned. I feel that is actually the beauty of this industry because it is in all our interest if we actually all would go in and invest into that startup. I think only when you really get to the top, top VC firms, there's a little bit of competition for the lead investors. But other than that, it's only going to help us. And so We've built this partner base of more than 250 partners throughout the region, VC firms, accelerator programs, other angel networks, all throughout APAC, and we actively share deals with each other. Because, again, we all want to be that startup that we're investing in. We want that startup to be successful. And so together, we can grow the whole ecosystem.
1: And as you think about going from point A to point B, what do you think is the future that you're looking at for Epic Angels?
0: Right now, we're at 200, at 200 plus angel investors, female angel investors. So there's a lot of room to grow. Uh, what we see is that about half of the angels are people that already did investments before. The other half is completely new. Never done it before. Of course, they are accredited investors, but they've never done it. Uh, and they're very curious about it. So our mission is really to get more people into angel investing, really get into that first step. That also means that our ticket sizes are relatively low. It can go as low as two and a half thousand dollars per startup. I think that's a big differentiator as well. And what you see with the rise of technology in general, more and more people are stepping into yeah, the venture capital world, the private equity world, no matter how you like to call it. I mean, just what you saw on the stock exchange a few years ago, if you wanted to buy shares, you had to go to a banker and they had to set up an account for you and you could only buy full shares and whatnot and probably only with a minimum pretty high amount. Right now for $5, I can buy a partial Amazon share right now if I want to with all the platforms and the technology that's out there. I see the same trend happening in angel investing as well in, in the whole world of VC and private where it's becoming much more accessible again because of the rise of technology people are becoming more knowledgeable um, there's the people want to diversify their portfolio there's more wealth in general happening so i can see that's going to be the future where it definitely is going to be more accessible and democratized if you will uh, for everyone out
1: there and what's interesting is that as I think through this, what do you think are going to be the obstacles from your perspective? What do you think are going to be the challenges for the syndicate?
0: Well, of course, the biggest issue with angel investing is how to get to an exit, how to really liquidate your shares that you have. That's, of course, the beauty. If you go to the stock exchange, of course, you might need to accept the loss. But if you want to, you can get rid of those same shares that you just bought just as easy as well. In the private market, that's currently a big issue. But what I've been seeing over the last few years is a big rise of secondary share platforms. More and more marketplaces are getting to the market. The other day I saw one was called Stonk, I believe. and They call themselves the Robin Hood of secondaries. And it seems to be popping up everywhere. So that whole challenge of like how do I actually monetize on my investments? I feel that there's a huge movement uh, that's coming up in the next couple of years.
1: I think that's an interesting part, right? We talk about secondaries, about exit. I think there's traditionally been a problem for angel investors. One aspect that I think about is that, you know, you come in, you're taking on the highest amount of risk at this early stage. And I think that's fair. There's a conversation and you make a decision to invest or not to invest. But I think often you see is that leader stage investors then kind of like take away the rights of earlier investors, especially angel investors, right? Especially in terms of pro rata uh, and even sometimes information rights. So I thought it was an interesting dynamic where I think people kind of look at the overall, I guess, paper valuation of the whole company, but not really thinking about the fact that, hey, you know, later stage VCs, for example, may issue a very large option pool and recompensate the management team in order to dilute the earlier stage investors. So a lot of these successive rounds of decisions will always end up making angel investing a lot less uh, of what the total stock looks like.
0: I think this whole topic of dilution it's it's a pretty complicated topic. I uh, I tried the other day to write an article about it to really break it down and like what is happening, but it is definitely something to watch for. Also specifically with all the the, the the zombie corns right all the down rounds that we've been seeing in big tech angels get a bit more anxious what's happening here and, and how do I get to an exit I also think in general if you look at the number of IPOs and how long it's taken right now for companies to go I mean if you look at an Apple you know that it only took them four years to go IPO Google it took them six years to go IPO whereas Stripe is on the market now for 13 years and still didn't do an IPO and had massive down rounds so as an early stage investor of course and you're seeing that like What's happening here? And because the dilution is still happening and definitely also with down rounds that are going on, IPOs, it's getting less and less. Uh, I think the simple reason why all these IPOs aren't there is because so much more money got into the venture capital market. So the need for IPOs, we reduced it ourselves. So we actually created the problem ourselves, I feel, in the venture capital world. Um, But that's a big challenge going forward.
1: And, you know, what do you think are ways for investors from your perspective, you know, everyone's kind of coming in because if you're an angel investor, you have excess capital. So you're looking to be, you know, obviously, already accredited. Yeah. So you're making decisions. You're already investing in the open markets. So you're investing in real estate. You've invested in maybe some private assets. You've invested in your own lifestyle and education. And then now you are got to make a decision about venture capital, right? How would you recommend people to think about that portfolio allocation? How do you think they should be thinking about how to protect the stake of their investment in the private markets?
0: Yeah, sometimes I get the question, but isn't it more safe if I just buy real estate? said, so like, please don't stop buying real estate. I, I don't think you should do angel investing instead of something else. It's more about the diversification of your whole portfolio. And I think you really, you need to have a passion for the startup ecosystem as well. I think that's always part of being an angel investor, uh, but of course with the financial return. So in general, my recommendation is no more than 5% of your total portfolio to put that in angel investing. If you're really seasoned and you're doing this a couple of years, you might increase it up to 10%, but no more than that. Really make sure that you have your other investment portfolios there and are making all the smart decisions because angel investing is very risky. But if you get a home run, it's a big one and you can really go big, but you can also lose everything that you're investing in angel investing you need to
1: be aware of that. Yeah, I was had a fun discussion of Shouting on a previous Brave podcast and she was talking about how she has the same discussion and obviously she also works with many female angel investors uh, and then you know, it was a bit to and fro discussing about sometimes, you know, uh, the handbag collection, the total asset value <laughs> yeah. that is, you know, can rival uh, some of the pre-seed funds that are out there in the ecosystem. I think from that, do you have any points of view about maybe are there something specific about how you onboard or discuss investing with female investors that are different from how you speak with male angel investors.
0: I think, in general, women tend to be more risk-aware. It's sort of a positive way of saying a bit more risk-averse.
1: So, need to... I, don't, I like risk-aware <laughs> because it means that men are not necessarily more risk-loving, which is it's not a positive thing. It's uh, risk-unaware. Uh, there we go.
0: Exactly, like, oh, right? I'm, it's more I'm risk i use
1: that for now. it's sounds <laughs> so much better. I'm not risk-conscious. more
0: risk-aware. <laughs> I'm not
1: risk-management. I'm risk-aware, right? And
0: a way to deal with that feeling of that risk is to get more information people are like okay if I get more information I can reduce at least a feeling of risk because in the end we're talking about a startup I mean if I look at the data room if I look at the profit and loss and and the balance sheet usually it's just you know uh, you and I can probably make a complete different one in five minutes as well that also looks right it's just a bunch of assumptions it's nothing more than that and when you invest this early stage you just have to have that trust in the founder and have that belief that this market indeed will evolve the way that the founder is predicting so what we're really trying to do is educating many uh, women in how do you even look into a data room if we are about to make a decision we do data room analysis together with our angels and we set up a call we go through it we take them through just in general what do you look at on a balance sheet what do you look at in a and l and what we sometimes see is that men are more like oh, okay that sounds good oh they're that sounds like a big name or they partner with Visa or hey they got accepted in Y Combinator i'll just put my money in without even looking at the numbers they're just open right or maybe more risk unaware like i'll just put that money in (laughs) where women are like no i want to see it right i want to get a better feeling so i think the educational piece is the main difference in my opinion and by creating this environment with only women they feel more open to actually throw in their questions uh, that they have about investing in general or about that deal specifically
1: yeah I mean, let's talk about risk awareness, right? So what do you think is, I think, the steps as you work with angel investors, what are the very concrete tactical things that you think people can do to become more aware of the risk or measure it accurately?
0: Risk measurement is a tough one, but I feel... So what you typically see as well, if people just start out, that's like, don't feel any pressure to immediately invest. Just put your nose in there, figure it out, join. We do a lot of calls with the founders uh, because that founder is in this early stage you're investing in the founder even more than in the actual value proposition that they offer because we all know that it's going to change and so you have to have that firm belief uh, in this founder And one of our angels she calls it the cupcake test like do I want to share my cupcake with this founder yes or no if it's a no the cupcake, the cupcake test, test I gotta yes. remember
1: this one I like it I like it <laughs> would I share this cupcake with this person uh, I, I I heard of the baby test which is would you Ooh. leave my kid with this person that's what I've heard and uh,
0: still you can leave it maybe with someone but don't really like that person. sharing the cupcake <laughs>
1: that's a tough one you don't one. have to like that person <laughs> I mean the question is the difference between liking someone and respecting someone yeah, and trusting someone
0: exactly yeah. have that There's trust are a lot of people
1: in life that I don't like but I trust them a lot <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then will you share a cupcake. we just
1: do a lot of business and we just get stuff done right
0: yeah so, so I think that is one of the biggest elements really starting to get to Know the founder a little bit. So, we do many founder calls. We do organize a lot of interactions and possibilities to interact with the founder. Uh, Still, for the founder, all centralized so that they don't need to speak with people individually because that would be a nightmare for them. Uh, But for the angels to really have the opportunity to join those conversations. So, we're not doing that behind the scenes. We're actually doing all those things actively with all the angels. I think that is a very big one. Um, It is also about increasing your knowledge. I recommend to many of our angels become a mentor at many any of those accelerator programs, because that will help you, that will educate you to see what's going on in this world. What does good look like? Because you have to get a bit of a feel for that at what's very early stage, what's happening pre-seed versus series A. There are many different things happening at that moment. And so we give them guidelines like this is what you can expect here, this is what you can expect there. And so that people have a bit more of a benchmark on what good looks like. And that's how we're trying to give them more knowledge so that they can make their own decisions.
1: Yeah. I think one interesting part is a lot of people want to be mentors for startups. I think a lot of mentors are pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> True. I feel like half the time I'm cleaning after some really bad advice <laughs> because the advice is like, you know, it works for big corporate or oh, yeah. it's like, oh, be nice, give that person a chance, put them a performance improvement plan for like six months. And I'm like, six months? This company has got like six months to live. You have a performance improvement plan for six months. The company's gone. So I feel like I'm kind of cleaning up a lot of advice so i don't know is there any advice you would give for mentors to not give bad advice or to tighten that loop
0: i mean because being in a corporate world or being an entrepreneur is a whole lot of beast right you you can't compare the two with each other i fully agree with you i think if we talk about the corporate investors so to say right the the angel investors that have this corporate job and there's a lot because they're like oh i'm in this corporate job i would love to leave but hey pretty comfy to stay my corporate job. And so let's not get into the entrepreneurial route, but still let's get involved yeah. by being an investor or being yeah. a mentor in that case. I think the biggest benefit there is that you can definitely show what it looks like to scale because big companies know how to scale. They don't know how to get started. I think that's the biggest right. issue small startups, they know how to start, but not necessarily to scale. So be aware indeed of where that difference is between the corporate world and the startup world as a mentor. I think the other big plus as a corporate mentor, so to say, is your network. The the biggest value of a mentor is in the network. How can you open up your network to the right people for that startup? What is it that the startup really needs? And it might indeed not be you, but that might be someone else. And I think that's how you can really help that startup. If it's not so much direct, on the business is by making connections from hopefully a business development perspective or any other example that's relevant to them. Yeah. And I think
1: that relevance is the hard part, right? Self awareness about what's relevant, what's not relevant. <laughs> I think actually a lot of the advice makes sense when you're at scale, but at that stage is so different from the earliest stages that often founders are going through in the first six months the first one year i think that self-awareness is super hard to be aware of at all but also i think when somebody is asking you a very good question you want to answer it (laughs) you don't want to say i don't know you don't want to say that's not my wheelhouse that's where i feel like kind of like give bad advice out of good intentions because they want to give a answer instead of no answer but i don't know i just feel like i end up personally i feel like and i'm in a situation where i'm just like uh okay if this advice you got what's the advice today you got from someone else and then i think the better founders triangulate advice so they get advice from two three four people and then they kind of like have that judgment to be like okay which one applies in this situation because there's no easy answer often
0: that's just like you have to have that connection with that person their needs because yeah even if you would just speak with other startup founders there's someone like i would never do it that way that's okay but you have to find that connection and indeed speak with multiple mentors
1: and on that know you've seen startups succeed go into the next round over the past three years obviously this is early in the syndicate's life yes but what would you say are things that from your perspective correlate with negative or failure outcomes from the startups that raise or pitch
0: I think what we always look for when we invest is it's one thing that you can complete this round, but how will you complete the next round? Because indeed, especially if you go in this early uh, for angel investors, that's going to be the success. And you can't rely just on angel money because that will only get you that far. You need to get into the venture capital world to really succeed and get to that next level. So we always look for signs in that direction sometimes for example we invest in startups that some of the vcs are saying we really love that but they're just really too early stage for us but you know there is the connection already and they actually recommend that specific startup to us so that for us is a very good signal even better of course if they go in already because I feel that more and more VCs are going in early stage as well and yeah. I see a lot of activity happening there so those for, our, for us real big signs that yes okay if, if they manage to get some money right now that's going to help them to raise their next rounds because that's the, the key thing right now of course the advice at the moment is get profitable or get acquired yeah. what is the thought? around that and and I've had many conversations with some startups as well like because everyone says okay what's your exit scenario acquisition okay great but what do you need to get towards an acquisition when are you actually an attractive candidate for an acquisition because it's easy to just say that like we're going to go for an acquisition but i feel that in that conversation with the founder if you really ask them okay what kind of kpis are you looking for what's the stage of what is it that would make you an attractive acquisition candidate and some of them are really good then they can immediately answer i actually spoke with that and that company that indeed could acquire us and they told me abc that's what we need to have in play and if a startup founder gives me an answer like that i was like okay good they are aware of what the game is and what they really need to work on to even get uh, attention for uh, as potential acquisition candidates.
1: Because
0: I think it's really the route forward in the current climate, get acquired or get profitable.
1: And on that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave?
0: Well, probably the bravest was uh, my move from the Netherlands to San Francisco because I went there as an entrepreneur. So I brought the company from the Netherlands to the United States. My husband quit his job. He was working at a bank and he's like, I believe in this. So let me quit my job. So we left and we went there without an income because as an entrepreneur, of course, if you don't sell anything, you don't have an income. We had savings for just a few months in the bank. There was really nothing yeah. there. And uh, I think That was pretty brave. I remember that we were in San Francisco and we're almost like, oh man, we can only afford living in a tenderloin, I guess. (laughs) You
1: live in a
0: tenderloin? I live a tender, tender knob. (laughs) as <laughs> I like to call it, right?
1: which is... I got to hear what a Tender Knob Tender Knob, is, yeah. right?
0: That's Knob Hill, Tenderloin. Knob yeah. Hill is the neighborhood north of Tenderloin. Yeah. So it's called Tender Knob. So I was literally on the edge. I was like, yep, because you have to sign this lease for a year. And I'm like, oh man, right? We don't have money. We don't know. And my husband didn't get a job. He didn't even have a work permit yet. And there I was as an entrepreneur, really starting the business from scratch. So that was pretty scary. We clearly survived we definitely lived the american dream and made it and built it and made it so that was amazing that's really an amazing experience but at that time it was pretty scary so When I look back at that, I think that's pretty brave.
1: I can't believe you live for a year plus in the Tenderloin. I'm just saying. I did like one night in the Tenderloin accidentally as a hotel booking with my wife and I. The Phoenix Hotel Uh, by the
0: way in the Tenderloin is a super cool hotel if you're looking for one.
1: (laughs) Now I need need to cool this and find out. And on that note, thank you so much Mikey for coming. I'd love to kind of like summarize the three big takeaways I got from this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about what's it like to build a female investor syndicate where you're not investing in Just female founders but also teams that have some female representation so I thought it was interesting to hear about what you have done differently in order to diversify and to onboard new female investors in terms of their investing journey to figure out not just the region but also figure out their asset allocation as well as how to invest Uh, secondly I enjoyed the conversation about risk awareness I think that is such a beautiful word (laughs) to talk about risk right I think the first step to understanding and managing risk is are you even aware of it and what is the set of information that you need to build out but also so what is the mindset that you need to have in order to understand de-risk and get comfortable with the investment at the end of the day. And we talk a little bit about gender in that context, but I think everybody should be risk aware at minimum. Uh, lastly thank you so much for sharing about some of your personal moments of bravery in terms of moving to america to moving to southeast asia and i think seeing a little bit about that difference and not just between countries but also i think having that conversation about getting your optimism and hope for southeast asia's growth especially relative to slower growth uh, and prospects Uh, on that note thank you so much for coming on the show
0: thank you so much jeremy for having me it was fun
1: thank you for listening to brave if you enjoyed this episode Please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.